Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you want to sign up to get members-only episodes, early access to general release episodes, ad-free content and written transcripts, for the price of a cup of coffee a month, then you can now in three different ways. First of all, via Patreon. You can sign up via the podcast website, historyofrussia.net, and then just click on the membership page or the Patreon logo. Or you can go directly to patreon.com forward stroke history of Russia and sign up there. Then there are two new ways of subscribing to members only content. First of all, via Apple Podcasts. Search in Apple Podcasts for Boyar Duma or the History of Russia podcast hyphen members only and hit the subscribe button. And then finally, you've got Spotify. All you do on Spotify is search for Russia members only and hit the subscription button. There, nice and easy. I'll put up all those details on the show notes for this episode and you can also find them in the membership tab on the website, which is historyofrussia.net. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Russia. I'm Damon and this is episode 66 of the Unlikely Empress and the unpragmatic sanction. Thanks for listening in. So, where had we got up to? Well, last time out, we looked at the 15-month period between October 1740 and December 1741, a period which encompassed four different regimes and a mixture of empresses and regents. We started with the Empress Anna Ivanovna, who fell ill and died in October 1740. Then there was Ernst Biron, who acted as regent for Ivan VI for three weeks, before he was ousted by Anna Leopoldovna and her gang, and then she also acted as regent for her son for about a year, before the Empress Elizabeth Petrovna took control of things in December 1741. And all of the above was played out against the background of French subterfuge and the opening salvos of the War of the Austrian Succession. In today's episode, we'll be pausing the chronological narrative and instead we'll be circling back just a bit, firstly to take an overall look at Anna Ivanovna's time in charge of the Russian state and then secondly, I'll be taking you through the background to and the causes of the War of the Austrian Succession. Oh, you lucky people. Now, Russia wouldn't be one of the key players in this conflict, far from it. And so you'd be well within your rights to be thinking, why are we covering it then? Which is a good point, but there are three very good reasons. One, 
The War of the Austrian Succession provides a fascinating insight to the politics and ambitions of the key European powers, especially those of Russia's neighbours during the 1740s. Then number two, Russia, as we've already seen, has been and would be involved in the peripheral games of diplomacy, intrigue, deception and backstabbing. And then thirdly, and I think this is probably the most important reason, I think it's a really good idea. Anyway, that's the plan. And so if you're ready, let's crack on and do some history of Russia. Okay, so we've spent the last few episodes looking at what happened in Russia and beyond during the reign of Anna Ivanovna, which probably to both us and some of the people who lived through it was an unusual and expectation-defying period. And I say some of the people who lived through it because, as I often point out, to the vast majority of the Russian population, the peasants and the serfs, it mattered not a jot who was sitting in the big chair in St. Petersburg. So what we're going to do for the first part of today's episode is look at why. Why was this 10-year time span, and Anna herself, unusual? And how did she and her reign defy expectations when, probably at the beginning, there weren't many or any, particularly if you take into account what had happened during the reigns of her predecessors, Peter II, Menshikov and Catherine I, which, if you recall, was very, very little. Catherine I had mainly parted and had left everything to Menshikov to deal with. Menshikov had spent most of his time feathering his own nest, and Peter II was a pawn in the game, being played by the Dolgorukis and the Galitsins, and anyway, he'd died young. What had been unusual or unexpected was how Anna had become empress in the first place. She was chosen by the Supreme Privy Council because in their eyes she was controllable and they needed a figurehead. If their plan had worked, Russia would have experienced something akin to a constitutional monarchy. Anna would have carried out the necessary ceremonial tasks, but the real power would have been wielded by the council. But as we know, Another faction, headed by Osterman, Cherkasky and Biron, had managed to turn the tables and get Anna in place as empress, without any of the council's restrictive conditions. So on the face of it, Anna would rule as an autocrat, ordained by God, which was a situation that the nobility, the church and the army all understood and were used to. This had been, and still was, the Russian way and everyone kind of knew where they stood. But, and it's a big but, no one in February 1730 really believed that Anna was seriously cut out for the job of empress, and Osterman, Biron and Cherkasky would have presumed that they could control Anna and wield the real power in the land. How wrong they were. Because somehow Anna managed to defy expectations, and slowly and surely a position was manufactured or arrived at where she ended up controlling them. So how did she do this? Did she have a plan? Was she scheming or Machiavellian? Or did she use fear? And did her experience gained as Duchess of Courland help her in any way? Well, yes, in part. 
What Anna did via a combination of luck and judgment was to have the right people in the right job and then she let them get on with things without interruption while she acted out the role of supreme autocrat. And so Osterman, Biron, Cherkasky, Ushikov and Munich were happy to run the Russian state whilst Anna held parties, tossed dwarves, built ice palaces, shot crows, played cards, made her fools cluck like chickens and gossiped endlessly. But as time went on, rivalries emerged. Biron hated Munich and both of them were wary of Osterman. In the end, each of the big three, Shokaski was a bit of a lightweight and Ushikov did his work in the shadows, were competing against each other for Anna's favour. And it worked. Slowly and surely, Russia's standing within European affairs was enhanced and generally respected. Her armies performed well, both in the war of the Polish succession and in the Ottoman campaigns, and her alliance with Austria held firm. On the home front, various reforms were either made or continued, and the state was kept stable and secure, and tax revenues were increased. The only people to suffer were the Dolgorukis on semi-trumped-up charges, the peasants and the serfs, whose living conditions certainly became worse, and those who were forcibly converted to Orthodox Christianity. Now Anna oversaw all of this, and she lasted a lot longer than expected, and yet her legacy or reputation has seen her judged as vindictive and sadistic, strange and unstable, coarse and vulgar, and dominated by the German faction at court, and in particular, Biron. To me, that reputation is unfair, although I can see a number of reasons as to how or why it came about. Compared to her illustrious half-uncle, Peter the Great, or those that would come after her and rule Russia throughout most of the remainder of the 18th century, Anna was something of a minor player. And let's face it, Anna's ways did make it easy for her detractors to criticise. Plus, throughout history, female eccentricity, quirkiness and cruelty have tended to be viewed as negatives, whereas for men, these traits seem to be more acceptable and viewed in a more positive light. And then there was the whole thing around Anna's Baltic German bias, which is interesting on three counts, because A, Ostermann and Munich were effective leaders and administrators. B. Ostermann had been doing his thing since Peter the Great's time. And C. During his reign, Peter the Great had used no end of foreign experts, generals and administrators. The reality was that this anti-German resentment was caused by one man, Ernst Johann von Biron, who, let's face it, was of very little use to anyone and only managed to hang around for so long because Anna was besotted with him and had convinced herself that she couldn't live or rule without him. But if you put legacy and reputation aside and carefully weigh up the positives and the negatives, I reckon that in Anna's case, the good probably outweighed the bad. She wasn't a great ruler by any stretch of the imagination, but this unlikely and unusual empress was, in her own strange way, far more effective than anyone ever expected her to be. And I, for one, in a small way, will miss her.
Okay, so now it's time for me to attempt to come up with a completely tenuous and questionable link between my summary of Anna's reign and the war of the Austrian succession. So, here goes. During the late 17th and early 18th centuries, three women had held the reins of power in Russia. Sophia, as regent for her brother Ivan and her half-brother Peter, and the empresses Catherine and Anna. And in 1741, a fourth, Elizabeth, was about to take her turn in the hot seat. Over the same period, the Habsburgs had managed to dominate their territories via the traditional male-only primogeniture system. And that was for two reasons. One, there had been enough male heirs. And two, the empire's rules, conventions and traditions prohibited female succession. Well, all of that was about to change. There, that really wasn't that bad, was it? Quite good as a link goes, I think. But unfortunately for us, it would take a while for the whole situation to unravel. And to fully understand the intricacies, we have to go back to the final years of the 17th century, when both Spain and Austria stroke the Holy Roman Empire were ruled by the Habsburgs. Spain, by King Charles II from the senior branch of the family, and Austria stroke the empire by the Emperor Leopold I from the junior branch. In early 1700, King Charles II of Spain became ill. There was nothing unusual in this, as Charles had suffered poor health throughout most of his life, but this time it was serious, and it didn't look like he was going to survive. There was a bigger problem, though, in that Charles II had no direct heir. When the news reached Vienna, Emperor Leopold, who had two sons, came up with a plan. His younger son, Archduke Charles, would inherit Spain, and his elder son, Archduke Joseph, would, in time, inherit the rest of the Habsburg lands, including Austria and the Empire. Leopold's plan, or pact, also stipulated that should either of his two sons die without male heirs, then eldest son Joseph's daughters would take precedence, and at this point in time, Joseph had no sons and a daughter. Charles, the younger brother, had no children at all. Leopold thought that he'd been very clever, and that his pact covered every eventuality. Unfortunately, he hadn't, and it didn't, because when news of King Charles II's illness reached Versailles, the French Bourbon king, Louis XIV, came up with his own plan to put his grandson, Philip of Anjou, who was distantly related to King Charles II, on the Spanish throne. In November 1700, Charles II died. Philip of Anjou became the new king of Spain, and soon after, the War of the Spanish Succession started. Leopold and his allies on the one side, Louis and his allies on the other. Russia, by the way, wasn't involved. And to cut a very long story short, after over a decade of war, the status quo remained unchanged, and Philip remained in situ as the King of Spain. However, back in Vienna, things had changed. Leopold had died in 1705, and his eldest son, Joseph, had become the Holy Roman Emperor. Then in 1711, Joseph also died from smallpox, 
And as he had no sons and two daughters, this meant that his younger brother Charles inherited the remaining Habsburg lands and became the new Holy Roman Emperor. At the beginning of 1713, with the war practically over, Charles turned his attention to the Habsburg inheritance, and in particular, his father's succession pact. And the more he looked at it, the less he liked it. Now Charles had married back in 1708, and thus far no children had been produced, and so the emperor was worried. If he died childless, or if he only had daughters, then by the terms of his father's pact, his brother Joseph's two daughters would take precedence. But the bigger problem would be that Austria's enemies would look to take advantage of the situation. So, Charles thought to himself, how could he avoid a potential Austrian succession crisis? And what he came up with was a device called the Pragmatic Sanction, which essentially did two things. One, it removed precedence from his brother Joseph's daughters, effectively eliminating them from the succession. And then two, and this is really key, it stated that should he not have any sons, then the eldest of any daughters would inherit his lands and titles. Okay, but saying all of that was one thing. What could Charles do to make it all happen if the need arose? Well, the best outcome would be have a son. But as just indicated, after five years of marriage, nothing seemed to be happening in that direction, even though his wife, Elizabeth of Brunswick, had undergone pretty much every kind of known treatment, cure and prescription, including protein, fat and alcohol-rich diets, which, all in all, had had an extremely adverse impact upon her health. Hope springs eternal and all that, but Charles knew that he needed a plan B, and so together with his chief minister, he embarked on a lengthy process that aimed to achieve recognition and sign-off of the sanction throughout the courts of Europe. The problem here, though, was trust. If, say, the King of France or the Empress of Russia signed up to honour the sanction, how could Charles guarantee that when push came to shove, they would? Well, the truth was he couldn't. But then neither could he just sit there and do nothing, although... His field marshal, Eugene of Savoy, suggested that perhaps the best guarantee would be a full treasury and a powerful army. Then, in the summer of 1715, all diplomatic activity related to the pragmatic sanction was suddenly paused, because Elizabeth of Brunswick was pregnant, and would you ruddy well believe it, in April 1716 she gave birth to a son, Leopold Johann. However, seven months later, the Pragmatic Sanction Roadshow was back in play. Leopold Johann was dead, and even though in the future Elizabeth would give birth to three further children, all of them would be daughters. Jumping forward, and by 1735, Charles had managed to get all bar two of the European rulers to accept his sanction. The two who had refused were Frederick Augustus II, the Elector of Saxony, and Charles Albert, the Elector of Bavaria, which was understandable because they were married to the daughters of the ex-Emperor Joseph, Charles's brother, who had both been effectively barred from the Habsburg succession. France accepted the sanction and in return received the Duchy of Lorraine, 
Spain did the same and got Palmer and Piacenza. Great Britain said yes on the condition that Charles shut down his recently opened trading company in the Netherlands and Russia, Poland and Prussia accepted out of loyalty to Austria. Between 1733 and 1735 there was the War of the Polish Succession and as we know Austria, Russia and Prussia managed to get their man on the Polish throne leaving France frustrated and plotting its revenge. Which it did. And starting in 1738 the French decided to throw a couple of spanners into the works by a. establishing stronger ties with Bavaria and Sweden and b by making diplomatic overtures to both Prussia and Russia via Elizabeth Petrovna in an attempt to separate Austria from its traditional allies. In May 1740, the French benefited from what appeared to be a huge stroke of luck, because the staunchly pro-Austrian King of Prussia, Frederick William I, died, leaving his son, the far less staunchly pro-Austrian Frederick II, a.k.a. the Great, a.k.a. Old Fritz, in charge. And then throughout 1741, as we've already heard, their efforts to get Russia on board seemed to be moving in the right direction. And so now, all France needed to do was decide when it was going to strike. And they wouldn't have to wait long. In October 1740, the 55-year-old Charles VI decided to go on a hunting trip in Hungary. The weather was cold and wet. I think you know where this is going. And the emperor caught a chill. Not long after his return to Vienna, his condition worsened, and on October the 20th, which was a week before Anna Ivanovna's death, he died, leaving an almost empty treasury, a disorganised and poorly maintained army, and his eldest daughter, the 23-year-old Maria Theresa, as his successor. But before France could do anything, Frederick II of Prussia struck. On the 8th of November 1740, he ordered the mobilisation of the Prussian army, and on the 11th of December, he issued an ultimatum to Maria Theresa, demanding the territory of Silesia, which belonged to the Habsburgs, and today makes up part of Western Poland. In return, and much to the annoyance of France, he offered to guarantee all other Habsburg possessions from attack, pay a large cash indemnity, and re-acknowledge the pragmatic sanction. But then, rather oddly, Frederick and his troops marched into Silesia without waiting for a response from the Austrians. Perhaps it was just impetuosity, or maybe he was worried about the French getting in on the act. Whatever the reason, Prussia's invasion of Silesia would effectively start the eight-and-a-bit-year conflict that would come to be known as the War of the Austrian Succession. Frederick's aims in invading Silesia were fourfold. Firstly, and most importantly, he wanted to enlarge the Prussian state and turn it into one of the top-tier European powers. Second, and only slightly less important, was Frederick's resentment of Austria, and all things Austrian. The reason for this was that his father had been a fervent admirer and supporter of the Habsburgs, and Frederick hated his father. Remember that back in 1730, 
Frederick had tried to escape from Prussia with his friend-companion Hans von Katter, but had been caught, imprisoned, and was then forced by his father to watch the execution of Hans for treason. Frederick William then stated that his son could only return to the fold if he agreed to marry. Frederick acquiesced, but then found out that it was the Austrians who'd been behind the choice of bride. Thirdly, he wanted Silesia in particular, as it was the richest, most densely populated and industrialised part of Habsburg territory. And then finally, if possible, he wanted to keep the French away from what he considered to be his backyard. Plus, he'd calculated that Russia, Austria's main ally, would be too preoccupied with its own internal affairs to be any kind of threat. And he was right. The last thing that Anna Leopoldovna and her Regency regime wanted, having just grabbed power, was a costly foreign war. Now the Austrians had less than 10,000 men defending Silesia, and so they decided to abandon the majority of the province and just keep hold of three strategic southern fortresses. Undeterred, Frederick gave the forts a wide berth, and within two weeks he'd occupied the vast majority of Silesian territory, leaving Austria with just the forts and a small chunk of territory in the south or lower Silesia. In the spring of 1741, the Austrians made an attempt to occupy the area around one of three forts, but on the 10th of April they were defeated at the Battle of Molwitz. However, Molwitz had been a close-run thing. The Austrian cavalry had swept the Prussian cavalry from the field, causing Frederick to take flight from the battle. And it was only the sheer determination and expertise of the Prussian infantry that had saved the day. This experience, combined with the fact that the French army was now mobilising, and the news from St Petersburg, which indicated that a possible agreement between France and Russia was imminent, caused Frederick to have a bit of a rethink about his aims. And on the 5th of June, Prussia and France formed an alliance via the Treaty of Breslau. Things were now looking grim for Austria, though it could have been worse if Lestock and Chetardy had been able to draw Russia into the Franco-Prussian alliance. They hadn't, by the way, but during the summer of 1741, they were still trying. Nevertheless, Maria Theresa's richest province had been occupied, and in August, the French and their Bavarian allies were marching eastwards along the Danube, and on the 14th of September, they captured Linz. Then a Saxon army joined the fray, and all three armies converged upon Prague. And it's at this point that Frederick realised that his alliance with the French had been a mistake. If things carried on the way that they were, France and Bavaria could become the dominant powers in Central Europe. About 600 miles to the west, Great Britain was thinking along the same lines. French ambition had to be checked, and so London urged Frederick to think about the possibility of peace between Prussia and Austria. And on the 9th of October, Austria and Prussia agreed to a secret armistice known as the Convention of Klein-Schnellendorf, under which both sides would cease hostilities in Silesia and Austria would eventually concede Lower Silesia in return for a final peace to be negotiated before the end of the year. 
So what did all of that mean? Well, it meant that Prussia was now an ally of both Austria and France, whilst Austria had now given away all of Silesia and risked losing Prague to France and her allies, and in return she would get some kind of peace settlement by the end of 1741. And while you consider the pros and cons of that particular deal, I will bring today's episode to a close. Next time, we'll be heading back to St. Petersburg to see how Elizabeth Petrovna's reign was shaping up. Plus, we'll be answering those questions that I left hanging at the end of the previous episode. What had happened to the Brunswicks and baby Ivan VI? And would the Russians be supporting Austria or the French? So until then, dear listeners, keep fighting that good fight. Look after yourselves and most importantly, stay nice and safe.